Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, this is the first episode that we're releasing from The Vault today. It is featuring our guest, Air Marshal Sir Graham Stacey, and you'll have heard it referenced in our cool episodes. Enjoy. On today's episode, uh, we have Sir Graham Stacey. Sir Graham started in the Royal Air Force in 1980 and served in numerous conflicts, including Bosnia, the Gulf, Kosovo, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He ranked uh, most recently as Air Marshal in his last role in the RAF and was knighted in 2017. He's here to uh, talk to us today about decision-making in a senior role in the military. So Graham, it's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Hmm. Our broad topic uh, for our broadcast is generally about decision-making, particularly in different environments and in uncertain environments. With that backdrop, can you talk to us about how you approached making decisions in what is a very uncertain environment. Yeah, thank you. So, so I, I'm sure I was once told that, you know, when you're talking to, you know, an interview or anything like that, never argue or never disagree. So I, I'm going to start by, I think, arguing. And it, it's really interesting that, that we've started this whole process by leaping into how we make decisions. Uh, and the, the question I would ask first is, why are we making a decision and what are we making a decision about? And certainly in the military, we have quite a sophisticated way of looking at this. Um, we call it mission analysis. And the, the first step is to really understand the task you've been given. Analyze the mission. Um, analyze the implied tasks as well as the implicit. It's easy to work out what you've been told to do, but but what else goes with it? What What is implied? What's the totality? And once you understand that, then perhaps you can start thinking about making decisions. Um, I think it was Einstein who's famous for saying that if you give him a problem to solve in an hour, he he will spend 55 minutes analysing the problem and five minutes on creating the solution. Um, I I would put to you that most organisations probably spend five minutes trying to understand the problem and 55 minutes solutioneering. Um, So before you get to a decision, especially in a complex environment, the first question is, why are you deciding? You know, what are you deciding? But what are you required to do? What are you fixing? What's broken? Um, what actions do you need to take? And that will set you on the right path of, of how to make that decision. Okay, uh, understood. So it's it's about making sure you understand and understand the problem rather than just jumping straight in. Could could you just help us uh, and the listeners to understand um, what exactly it looks like in terms of the information you're given? What sort of visuals do you have? What sort of sources of information? Where does it all come from? And how do you put that all together when you're making your decisions? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a really good question. And, and all I would say is that, that 
in a large military headquarters, um, an American military headquarters, a, a coalition military headquarters, uh, the, the first thing to do is think industrial scale. Um, you know, we, we love numbers and, and acronyms and things. And, and in a big headquarters, a joint headquarters, the planning cell is called J5. Number five function is, is plans. Um, typically, a J5 alone might be three, 400 people. Um, the J2, that's the intelligence and information gathering, could be another 500, 600. U.S. Central Command, it was close to 2,000 people just on J2. So, so it's an enormous operation. It's an enormous undertaking. Um, producing and processing a lot of information, as you'd expect. Um, think lots of computer banks. Think lots of display screens. Um, think lots of process. Um, think lots of small teams working to bigger teams to bigger teams, etc. Um, we use open source information. We use big data. We use analytics. We use intelligence, low grade, high grade, highly classified intelligence. We use local expertise. We use, if we're in a foreign country, I would be amazed if I didn't have an ex-ambassador or ex-diplomats, um, aid workers, NGOs, all there along with us, giving their particular expertise. Uh, and this whole thing is about processing, analyzing, synthesizing and displaying information in the most user-friendly, easily accessible way. Uh, but think big and think complicated. So, so that's um, that's very interesting. We are a very process-driven team. We believe in the mantra of process um, over outcome, and we we are very rigorous in our process to reach investment and decisions. Um, how does that work in practice uh, in the army or the military um, to make those kind of strategic decisions? So. Um, despite for many years being called an anarchist, um, I, I do believe in process um, <laughs> for a purpose. Um, but, but, but I also believe that process can overtake a sensible decision making. And in a typical headquarters, so, so how broadly, I mean, we could spend four hours on just this topic, but, but broadly, um, a, a commander, um, you will analyze a problem, decide what decisions are going to make decide the sort of broad approach you're going to take. And, and then the team, after a lot of analysis, will, will produce for the commander or the leadership or, or, or the chairman or something, a, a number of courses of action. But now, you talk about you know, process and product and things. I, I like to think of it in command-led or staff-led. And what's interesting is, is when the four courses of action, for instance, that are produced, all look and smell exactly the same. Um, the only difference is whether you have tea after dinner or coffee after dinner or something. Um, the reality of that is that the commander is not making any decision. Um, courses of action should be measurably different, that they should be tangible, they should be you know, a completely different approach. And I think staff-led, the staff run away with it, and they've decided what they want to do, and they constrain the commander's decision-making. Command-led, the commander makes it very clear what his or her end state is, what the outcome is, what the big idea is, and the staff work to produce courses of action through analysis, through process, through discussion, through wargaming, through everything else. They produce courses of action that mean that the decision makers can make meaningful decisions. Uh, and so I think it's really important that, that the commander has a role that he or she has influence, has ownership of the ultimate decision. And when your command, when your decision is just minor detail, 
on a plan that the process has produced, something has probably gone wrong. Can I, can I probe a little bit deeper yeah. just in how, how that works in practice? How do does command interact with people on the ground? So, in theory, it should be simple. I, I mean, you know, there is a name, there is a hint in the name. We talk about a chain of command, uh, and there is a chain. Um, that there is a chain of people or a chain of nodes or a chain of communication that goes from the very top to the very bottom. Uh, and in this day and age, it, it ought to be simple. Global communications, real-time communications, you know, a commander should be able to say something or, or produce a video or something, and he or she will be seen by every person in the field within seconds later, in theory. Um, doesn't always work like that. Go back a couple of hundred years ago, you know, when, when Wellington was in the Peninsula Wars, it used to take two weeks for his orders to get to him from London. Now, I personally think he was in an ideal position, but that is just a, a, an odd way of looking at it. But so, so, so we have ability to communicate with people from the top to the bottom. The question is, what should we be communicating? And in the military, most militaries in the world, and certainly I have grown up and I have lived with what we call mission command. And the premise of mission command is quite simple. Don't tell people how to do their job. Don't tell them what to do. Allow them to make that call themselves, but make it very clear what you require of them. What's the end state? What's the outcome? What do you want achieved? And there's constraints and there's limitations and, and freedoms. When do you want it achieved by? You know, in what state do you want it achieved? So just make that end state very clear. What has to be the objective very clear and let people get on with it. Because the real question in all of this to me, is not about getting information from the top to the bottom, but it's about creating an organisation that's got flexibility, has got agility, and people can use their initiative. Because that's the battle-winning edge. And it doesn't matter whether you're an investment or, or whether you're on a battlefield. People at the lower levels, using their initiative, being empowered, feel confident to exploit opportunities. That's when you really win battles, etc. And ultimately, the, the, the lifeblood of Mission Command is trust. You trust your subordinates to do what they do best and you set the conditions for them to do it. They trust you to give them clear guidance and support them when it goes well and when it sometimes doesn't go well. Um, and I would ask every organisation, the first thing I would say to any organisation is how do you measure the trust within your organisation? Do you know the level of trust between the top and the bottom? And if they say, oh, we're not sure or it's not very good or we don't trust the leadership, then something is fundamentally wrong. Mission command and trust, that to me is as important as the chain of command. Uh, out of curiosity, how old or new is the whole concept of mission command? It depends who you speak to. So if you happen to be in the Royal Navy, they will tell you that Nelson invented it. Um, I suspect if you're an Italian, they'll tell you that the Roman army used to do it. <laughs> um, I, I think it's been around for a long time, in some guise or other. Um, I mean, it, 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 I think it is a an incredibly sound leadership principle. I, I suspect that some Roman commanders and, and Genghis Khan and people may well have had elements of mission command. Um, it, it, in many cases, it's almost a holy grail. A lot of people talk about it, but actually implementing it and creating the conditions for it to happen is more difficult. So it's nothing new. There's nothing magic about it. Um, it is about allowing people to get on and do what they do best. Okay. I think there are analogies um, with fund management to a degree. So investing in a company and then allowing the management to get on and get to the right end state, as, as you've yep. talked about. Um, but 
how do you know when to intervene when things aren't going right or you think that there should be intervention how do you make that decision yeah I, I, again i mean you're absolutely right so the, the utopian world um would be everything's mission command uh, and you you know nothing ever goes wrong and but things change situations change you know political direction changes something may happen 100 miles away that has an indirect impact on what someone is doing on the ground be it an investment bank or or, or be it um, a military operation so I, I, i'm quite a visual thinker uh, and so, so if, if you bear with me if you just imagine um you're sitting down in front of you listening to this uh, and imagine you've got two big levers in front of you uh, you know, driving a ship or a train or something. And one of those levers is command, in my case, mission command, allowing people to get on with it. And one of them is control, when you actually have to step in and take immediate hands-on to stop something happening or encourage something or prevent something going wrong. And as you're driving along, in my case, my control lever is pushed fully forward. Sorry, my command lever is pushed fully forward. My control is right back at the end. No control all command. If something comes up, I need to step in, then I can pull back on command, push forward on control, solve that one specific problem, me or someone in the chain of command. But when I take my hands off those levers, they should spring straight back to all about command, no control. So you do have to do it. And, and there is this, and, and you know, in military organizations, you will quite often hear people talking about command and control. What do they actually mean? What's the difference between command and control? To me, that's the difference. Command is inspiring, mission command orientated, allowing initiative. Control is when you have to get the long screwdriver out. It should be for as short as possible, as little as possible, and as infrequent as possible. But sometimes you have to do it and get people used to it. That's why we have exercises. That's why we have training. That's why, you know, the first time it happens, it shouldn't come as a catastrophic shock. It's part of the normal business if you do it properly. So in the um, investment world um, where you are doing fundamental analysis uh, to decide whether or not you're going to buy a security, uh, church in a company or a fixed income or something else, um, there is, and when you understand that you are dealing in an uncertain environment, you are trying to reach out and seek as much information as possible. and there is a point where it doesn't really matter how much time you spend. It can be a short period of time from one day to two weeks or maybe as long as six months. There's a point where you're not going to be able to control every single piece of information out there or have perfect knowledge uh, to make a decision. So in the military, when you are preparing for a mission, how do you know where you have enough information to go ahead? Yeah, I, I, again, another really interesting view that, that I'll push back on slightly, if I may, because it, it's interesting that y y we've leapt straight into discussion about volume of information in order to make decisions. Um, I, I would actually, again, turn that on its head slightly and say, um, what, what do you need to know? I, I mean, it, it, if you don't know what you're looking for, then, then how are you going to find it? And it goes back to the very beginning of this conversation. Once you've analyzed the problem, once you've analyzed your mission, you've done your mission analysis, once you know what decisions have to be made, not could be made or might be made or, you know, would be fun to make, but what do you actually have to make, then the information you need to make those decisions may become clearer. I, and we have a system we call CIRs, 
critical information requirements, the information that you absolutely need. And that doesn't mean the totality. You can consider lots of other things, but what bits of information do you need? Occasionally called the CCIRs, Commander's Critical Information Requirement. When the commander, when the chairman or the CEO wants to make a decision, what critical information does he or she require? And actually that starts to focus the staff and focus that collection. Because you're right, in this day and age, I mean, you can be firehosed quite literally with information. If you don't know what you're looking for, what you need is in there somewhere. If you don't know what you're looking for, then you're really going to struggle to find it. So, so I would concentrate on what you need is the first thing. The second thing, and you touched on it, is time is really important. You know, the best decision in the world an hour too late is useless. I mean, you know, deciding what you're going to do on Monday, on Tuesday morning might be fantastic, but it's completely useless. So, so you've got to really understand when you need to make that decision by. And I was brought up with the one third, two third rule. Um, as a commander, I should consume a maximum of one third of the time to give the people under me two thirds of the time to make the plan or start implementing or make preparations or travel or get things in place, etc. So, so it's about knowing the decisions you want to make knowing the information you need and being really honest about the timelines because missing deadlines or putting other people under pressure is not helpful in any form. In this day and age, you know, we're going through a cultural change in the military. There's a lot of old school people who like, you know, highly classified, very accurate, very auditable pictures, intelligence, old style ways of doing business. But, but nowadays, open source information, big data, analytics, you know, you can't show people a picture. You can show them trends, you can show them analysis, but I want to see the picture. But that, that, that doesn't really happen. You, you know, how do you, I mean, an interesting proposition that was put to me uh, a few years ago is, you know, if you wait for a Russian tank to get to the border, it might be too late. Um, why aren't we analyzing the purchase of shampoo and toothpaste near Russian barracks? Because before people go anywhere, the first thing they do is rush to the shops and make sure they've got, that may be a silly example, but that's the mindset. But then when you go to politicians and say, we want to deploy forces because toothpaste sales have gone up, mm -hmm. you get a funny look. Yeah. But actually, it might, it might be right. So, so we're having to, to think new and think bold and all that sort of thing. So it's a changing world, um, but, but, but the criticality, concentrate on what you need to know would be my advice. I I think that um, well, in the previous conversations that we've had, you, you touch upon the concept of uh, catastrophic success. And if I understood that correctly, it it entails thinking about, you're always predispositioned to think about everything that can go wrong, but you don't think how to take advantage of when things go right. And I think that that's quite relevant for us yeah. in the investing world. Can you, can you please yeah, elaborate, so, elaborate so, a little so bit more? The, 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 you won't always make exactly the right decision your information might not always be accurate. There are going to be occasions when you go over the hill and you think there's going to be four tanks and there's 40. And at that point you have a, whoops, what do I do now moment? And the interesting thing is, I think a lot of organizations concentrate on how we deal with failure or how we deal with risks or how we deal with something going wrong. Um, but how many concentrate on how we deal with things going better than we expected? And, and it comes down to battles are won um, mergers, I suspect, are one. You know, economic success is one in exploiting opportunities. And, and when you see that opportunity and it opens up, or you get ahead of the game, I mean, you know, when you when you want a certain level of sales and you double it, 
um, you know, does that allow you to expand quicker or do you collapse because you've got nothing left in the warehouse? I mean, I, so, so I think it is. The point I was making is that it, it's easy to, you know, we war game the what ifs. So often we concentrate on the what ifs when they go wrong. I think sometimes we have to concentrate on the what ifs if they go right. In the First World War, the first tank battles, you know, no one knew what a tank was. Um, <laughs> the first tank battles, the tanks got much further than anyone expected, but no one was there to follow them because everyone had predicted that, uh, well, yeah, he might get... Because, of course, warfare in those times, you know, if you made 30 foot, it was a good day in the office. Mm -hmm. You know, suddenly these tanks were 10 miles ahead of people. <laughs> well, what do we do? We, we, can't, we can't move. We, you know, we haven't got authority. We're not permission. We haven't got anything to move us. And so that's what I mean by catastrophic success. And I would say to any good organisation, think through it because you never know. I, and it is... It all, it's a common theme here, isn't there, about initiative, exploiting, taking opportunities, empowering people to take action. And very much that's the way my mind works. Um, can, I, can I touch on quality of information? So you, you mentioned it with the number of tanks, for example, but what, what the problems we face when we're looking at information for companies is that there could be agendas or biases between, uh, behind the information we're getting. So sell-side research might be influenced by the recommendation or you may have an issue with the company data because they want to put the best um, favourable stance on it. How do you deal with that sort of situation where there may be an agenda behind the information you're, you're receiving? Yeah, and, and, and I, I, I mean, you're being very polite. I mean, maybe. I, I would almost say that there is likely to be an agenda in any information. Any information you get from a third party or an external source will come with you know, something in it for them, probably. Um, it, it may not be malicious or it may not be, you know, necessarily evil, but but it's in their interest. So, so I, I, I mean, the first thing is don't take anything at face value. I, I mean, that there is a, without dragging down more and more process, you know, a, you know, a single source telling you what you want to know and what makes you feel good may make you feel good temporarily, but probably you need to check it and go back and get multiple sources, cross-reference it, um, get people in the organization. Like I say, if, if you get information, if all the information is reinforcing how good your plan is, you need someone in the organization to stand up and say, I smell a rat here. Something's not quite right. Either we're being fed misinformation or we're only collecting information that makes our, you know, builds on our own theories. So, so get out there and find me something else. You know, find me a doubter, find me an alternate point of view. Um, test it. You know, we've all got someone in the organisation who's who thinks slightly differently. Get them to look at the information as well. So, so I I, I, I absolutely think you're right. I mean, it's just uh, you, you know, we have gone, we have made countries have made strategic decisions on flimsy single source information. Um, you've got to take a deep breath and ask, you know, why. Uh, and you know, like I say. Build that into your build that into your process. I told you, anarchist, but I don't mind process. Part of the process has got to be just you know being sensible and checking and maybe doing a, 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 a being slightly cynical about some of the information. It sounds like there's some things there we, we'd like to come back to. It sounds quite similar to red team, which we'll ask a bit bit later on. Um, but I, one thing I am interested in is that it seems to me as though not everyone is completely predisposed to being right for making decisions in uncertain environments. It's not something which always comes naturally to everyone. So how, how do you prepare someone to deal with uncertain situations? Is it training? What, what way did the RAF approach it? So, so uh, uh, what I'm about to say probably has, has 
very little academic sort of um, pedigree or something. But but from my own personal experience and my dealings and talking with people, if I had to put my finger on the, the single biggest difference between a very competent mid-level manager and a genuine strategic leader, I would say it's his or her ability to deal with ambiguity. You know, anyone can go through process. Anyone can can you know do what's done before, but do it better. But but genuine ambiguity takes certain skill sets, etc. And I, I happen to believe that can be grown, that can be nurtured, that can be developed. Uh, and in the Air Force for three years, I ran a, a development program called the Senior Leadership Development Program, and we were taking in our our level um, people who were just entering air rank or just becoming generals one star two star generals and and we were we were preparing them for that role because that was the first time often that they were genuinely having to deal with ambiguity complexity um, confusion and everything else at the same time how did we do it it, it was a light mixture of academia the theory very light mixture um, but more importantly it, it was speaking to people from different walks of life completely different walks of life um, exploring problems with, you know, finance institutions, with industrial institutions, with NGOs. Um, we had, a, you know, something completely different. I'll give you, for instance, uh, a great working session with an individual who ran Glasgow City Council Support Services. You might think, what is that? It's a very good question. It, it is the people that provide the cleaners for the offices, the dinner ladies, the tea ladies, in all the council offices, the schools and everything in Glasgow and Scotland. Um, the relevance of that is that that's a workforce that's 95% female. It's a workforce that predominantly comes from very poor um, areas of the community. It's a workforce that over 50% were single parents um, trying to bring up children on their own. Almost every single one of them worked on a part-time or shift or, or strange hour basis. You couldn't get an organization much more different from quite a male-orientated military um, than that organization. So to sit down with the CEO and our chief executives and crunch through the problems, what they did, how they did it, the challenges they faced, transferable skills, how they dealt with industrial relations, with strikes, with money problems, etc., it just gives that different point of view. It gives the senior leadership team a bit of an opportunity to get to know each other and to run these problems. Um, it gets people to explore their own understanding of ambiguity, etc. Um, it worked extremely well. I mean, did everyone walk out? Fantastic. No, they didn't. It became pretty clear who were going to be the stars of the future and who weren't. Um, but I would put to you that a lot of organisations, I would dare say most organisations, spend a lot of time nurturing, educating, and developing the junior people, the middle people, and even some of the low senior people. Once you get to very senior people, we seem to forget to do it. It becomes by osmosis. We expect them to know everything anyway. I would say every organization, look at the very top of your team. Where are they being given space to develop, to nurture, to learn, to discuss, to study, to think? How often do you get to just think about things rather than be rushed to the next deadline? So my top tip to every organization, concentrate on your senior team as much as you do on your junior team and it will pay dividends. And that's how you prepare people for ambiguity. That, that's very interesting. And um, so going back to market and thinking about markets, um, we see markets 
as probabilistic environments. And so we were wondering if you could touch upon how do you make strategic decisions in the army um, incorporating probabilities? Do you weigh probabilities? Uh, do you do scenario analysis? How how do you think about, about that? Yeah, I mean... Analysis. I mean, every big headquarters has got a, a very sophisticated OA cell, operational analysis cell. Um, we've almost certainly got modelers there. We've got simulations. We've got, uh, they're all there and, and they're very useful. And they are absolutely an aid, an aid to decision making. Um, can they replace decision making? I would say absolutely not. A few specific scenarios, maybe. Um, quite rightly, we, we try not to have cause collateral damage, unnecessary casualties, civilian casualties. You know, if I was going to drop bombs on an enemy installation quite near a school, I would do very detailed analysis covering every eventuality, every weather pattern, everything on where that bomb might go. And if there's any chance of it hitting the school or causing damage to the school, I probably wouldn't do it. I mean, go, no-go situation. That's quite a specific example. Other examples, though, I think that analysis has to be part of the decision cycle. But for us, it can't be all of it. When we talk about fighting power, one of the components of fighting power, you have a physical component, which is, you know, how good your weapons are, how many you've got, you know, how many bombs you own or whatever. You have a conceptual bit, which is how you do things, you know, your tactics, your skills, your, um, you know, the doctrine you use. Then we say we've got a moral component and that's about the people. How well are they led? How are they motivated? Do they believe in what they're doing? You know, what level of, of commitment can you expect? You know, people don't, people don't do incredibly brave and courageous acts because they've got a better tank than someone else. They do it because they're well led. They believe in what they're doing. They trust their people. They, they have a, a bond with the rest of their team. And that moral component of fighting power I think is is really difficult to analyze statistically. Um, yet it can be the difference between winning and losing. And I think it's probably true in every environment as well. The quality of your people, you can analyze. And if it's a no-brainer, you know, if you're going to lose a billion dollars, then, you know, good people probably aren't going to make much difference. But But if you're on the cusp, you know, if it's about right, if it's even, but you're not quite sure, look at the quality of your people, the quality of your leadership how much you believe it can be done, how much they believe in you, how much they believe it can be done. And if the answer is yes to that, then I would say that, you know, that is as important as a statistical analysis of outcomes and probabilities. But if both got to play a part to play, don't get me wrong, I'm not, you know, my anarchy doesn't say no statistics, no analysis and no process. Um, but they're there in order to assist decision-making and leadership, not replace it. Can I ask about um, past decisions? So what one thing we do as a team is have a learning day. And the learning day is going back, having a look at our past research or um, our past decisions and doing after-action reviews, going back and having a look to see what happened versus what we thought was going to happen. What, what, what do you do in, in the RAF to look back at past decisions? So... All military organisations, certainly all the ones I've been involved with, um, have a lessons process. I, I mean, in NATO, um, in my last job, one of the units that I owned 
was the joint analysis and lessons centre in Lisbon and Portugal that did it for the whole of NATO. So, so like everything else, we do it on an industrial scale, but we absolutely do do it. A couple of observations. Firstly, um, you mentioned coming back afterwards and having a look. Um, I, I, my personal, I would advocate hot debriefs, hot wash down, whatever you want to call it, you know, immediate action reviews, the day it finishes or something, capture what's in people's hearts and heads at that time. You know, saying to people, you've done a fantastic job, what an amazing takeover, take the weekend off, come back in next Wednesday and we'll talk about it. Well, they probably killed a million brain cells with wine in between anyway, so they'll have forgotten what they've done. So, But but you won't get that same sense of, of passion and urgency and things. And that might be good because it might be an objective look, but, but I would do both. So, so that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that most organisations and most military are the same. We're great at collecting lessons. We're great at identifying them. We're less good at turning them into lessons learnt or things changing. And there is a sort of human psychology that if you write it on a list or put it in a book, then you've achieved something. Well, you haven't made one iota difference to the man or woman on the ground. All you've done is used up ink and paper. You've got a nice thing to keep the window open if it's drafty, but but it you know nothing else. So the real question to me is how you turn lessons into action. And to me, the way you've got to do that, every lesson has to have a senior owner. Who is responsible? Who's accountable? for delivering that change? And have they got the resources and the authority to do it? So it, it is about lessons, but it is about delivering on lessons. The very last thing I'd say is I, I think we're, we're not, most organizations are not exploiting yet the power of social media in lesson collection. You know, we have a, we have a position now where every man and woman in the organization could give a lesson about a particular function, a particular aim, a particular action that was taken on social media. I would, maybe you do it. I, I don't know, but but most organisations don't. It's not it's easy necessarily. And I, you know, what happens that the driver in the motor pool may have a lesson or a problem or an issue that might not affect the chairman, but it might do, and it might give you an indication of something that's applicable to the whole organisation. So how do you, I mean, we now have the potential to ask every single person or get them all involved in the lessons process. Are we doing it? Not sure. Do we need to do it? I am sure. Do we need to have a process? See, more process that turns lessons into action? Absolutely. And that's the key. Um, and with this, with that same vein, um, our team or in our team, we talk a lot about psychological safety, which um, means anyone should be able to challenge anyone's assumptions regardless of uh, role or position in the team and um, we are incentivizing um, dissent in terms of whenever we are discussing an investment case um, the armed forces aren't do, do not really have a reputation uh, for having a very flat structure so so how do you go about um, promoting or incentivizing people in junior ranks to um, voice their dissent or a different opinion? Yes, yeah, it's, it's really interesting you use, use the word dissent. Um, you know, I mean, and I think if, you know, knowing my own background, I, I think if you, and it, words matter, uh, and I'm not criticizing you, but it, you know, if you went to a military organization and say, right, I've got a project, I want to sow dissent in the organization, <laughs> you'd probably get a different mm -hmm. reaction to if you went in and said, I want to encourage free thinking in the organization. But, but I know exactly what you mean, and I, and I, and I, and I do agree with you. I mean, 
I personally think that this is something that the very top of the organisation must set the tone and set the agenda for. And, and if, if the people, person, small group of people at the very top genuinely do that and deliver it, then it will percolate through the organisation. Um, and I have been in organisations where, you know, the top people have said, absolutely, you know, we've got to have free thinking and people have got to be able to express opinions, but not in my meetings because my meetings are really important. Well, that's not the way it works. And so so I, I think the first thing I'd say is it is about tone and, and it is about people setting the, the sort of culture of an organisation. It is almost a cultural thing. Um, the, the, the second thing I would say is that, that actually... I'm a passionate believer in diversity within working groups because I, I think that actually aids it. I, I mean, it, it's, you know, when you sit there and you've got 20 male white faces all having a discussion, then it's very easy for people not to want to step out or not to want. I think there's a natural flow in conversations where you have a mix of age, of gender, of backgrounds, of, of, of religion, of race, everything. Then, you know, I, in my experience, that free flow, providing the tone is set by the top of the organisation, um, does help. So, so I, I think it can be done. I, I think you'd be surprised at how much um, room there is in militaries to to express that opinion. Because, and it, it goes back to mission command in many ways. Because if mission command is done properly, and it's not always, let's not pretend it is, but if it's done properly, I mentioned before, the lifeblood of it is trust. And if you've got an organisation that has got trust running through its veins, then people are more inclined to express an opinion because they know they can trust the commander or the chairman not to throw them out the room or to ridicule them or laugh. Um, but also, you, you know, they trust me to listen to their opinion, but I trust them to realise that I may listen, but I may choose to disagree or ignore, or only take part of it. And that's all about mutual respect and trust. And I think if you've got an organisation that has that running through it, then this becomes a lot easier. I'm painting a simple picture. Um, have I been on occasions, have I worked with people who absolutely do not want to hear anything but what they agree with or makes them look good? I have been. And, you know, I've been at the bottom end of that and, and it's it's miserable, it's horrible, especially for someone like me because I am an anarchist, so I don't <laughs> sit well in that organisation. Um, but 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 it can be done, is all I would say. And, and you know, I mean, I, yeah, people at the top of the organisation, organisations that do allow free thinking, and it's related, I think, to innovation as well. The holy grail of every organisation is, is to innovate. Well, inherent in innovation is you might make mistakes. Things might not work. I put that in the same sort of category as expressing opinions. You know, if you're not prepared to express an opinion because you're going to get shouted at or ignored or ridiculed, why would you want to innovate? Because when it goes wrong, you're going to get shouted at, ignored or sacked or something. I mean, they're in the same category. So if you want a vibrant, flexible, agile organisation, trust your people and listen to your people. So uh, James Montier, who is a market commentator, was uh, he gave an interview in a podcast a few months back and he was making that exact same point because he was asked a very similar question. He was he, he did say that everything came down to the culture of the organization and the culture of the team and w the, the fact that you will have you will be able to provide 
junior people or senior people to have different opinions become it, it, it's all about how that team or that organization actually works and um so that uh, leads me to the next question which is about bread teaming and i was wondering if you could um first provide the audience with a little bit of an explanation of what bread teaming is and how does it work in the army and and um and how does it help in the process of making a decision yeah i i and you know we had a brief chat about this before i mean I, so red teaming is good let's start off with that great um the next question is what do you mean by red teaming and and there are you know it should be easy i guess it's probably a dictionary definition but but certainly in my experience and you know i've seen it i've seen people think they've got red teams and the red team basically plays devil's advocate um challenges assumptions just you know sort of just if people are analyzing by method a the red team will analyze by method B just to see if you end up with the same result. That said, other people, when they talk about red team, is what others call a red cell. Is you've got a group of people who are trained, educated to think like the competitor. You know, if you don't want to know what the competitor bank is going to do in a situation, then you can phone them up and ask them, but they might not tell you. So you might have a team in here who who thinks like the competitor. In, in a military environment, you know, you, you will have a red cell that 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 does the same analysis but uses enemy doctrine enemy tactics enemy processes and see what the conclusion comes up with actually red team red cell no matter what you call them i think they're both important so, so i would i would say probably do both next question is be very clear what you want them to do i mean if you want them to be the enemy tell them if you want them to be alternate analysis tell them because actually they're different things and you might get strange results if they think they're doing A and you want them to do B. Choose who you've got in very carefully. I, I mean, that there is an art to it. Um, that, that You want people who free think, who've got confidence, who can work on their own, um, who are flexible, adaptable, probably resilient because it's not necessarily the most popular job in the world, disagreeing with most of your mates and work colleagues occasionally. So, so choose the team very carefully, um, but nurture them, encourage them, support them, trust them. The last thing I would say, good red teaming starts at the beginning of a process and goes all the way through. I think a lot of organizations make the mistake. They bring the red team in at the end and it feels to everyone involved like their homework is being marked. You know, it's gone up to teacher who's going to red ink it and send it back. But that's not collaboration. That's not teamwork. That's not getting the best out of an organization. So I would absolutely say bring the red team in. The red team should be assisting giving alternate views with the mission analysis, with the decision-making, with the timelines, with everything that goes on. And at the end of it, you know, you should all be able to slap each other on the back saying, didn't we collectively, including the red team, do a great job here? So vital. I would say you can't organize. I would, you've got to have one. The first thing I would say to an organization almost, the second thing, first thing is, do you have any trust? Second thing is, do you have a red team? Um, you described yourself a couple of times as an anarchist, um, which seems like someone to me who might be prepared to take on career risk. And something in the fund management industry that's talked a lot, a lot about is career risk and how that stands in the way of making optimal decisions. Can you talk a little bit about career risk in, in the RAF and, and how that played a role? Yeah, I, I'd like, I mean, I had a very successful career in the RAF, so, and I did take career risk, so I would... I, do we have a problem? Yes, we almost certainly do. But um, first, first comment I would say is 
is there a particular bit of the organization or level of the organization that's prone to this? In my experience, the bottom of an organization, the very junior people, the very young people, you don't tend to have a problem. Um, they're fresh, they're full of enthusiasm, they're having fun. Most of them aren't thinking about mortgages and schools and everything. They're just enjoying life. So, you know, anyone who at 21 is sitting in the office plotting their career, I would worry about. Um, so, you know, change, risk, attitude, that they tend to be very good. Paradoxically, at the very top of the organisation and near the top, I think you get the same sort of thing. People are confident. They probably know, really. They might have one more promotion left. If anything, they might know they've reached the top of their pinnacle. House is paid for, you know, kids have gone. So I think they're probably more comfortable. So in both career risk, but also attitudes to change, the top and bottom in the organisation, I find genuinely to be quite easy. It's the blob in the middle that tends to cause problem. And not because they're bad or evil or lazy or anything, but, but they've got most to lose. So it's that blob in the middle. And yet we absolutely do have that, that issue in the military as well in change programs, in, in risk, in, in taking easy option, telling commanders what they think the commander wants to hear rather than telling the truth and everything. So so recognise you've got a problem. Um, first thing I would ask is, is, is there concern that being outspoken or um, an advocate for a certain thing or doing a certain way of business, is their concern real or is it a perception? Because you never know, it might actually be real. Go back and see how many of the mavericks you have promoted in the last five years. And if the answer is none, but you want to encourage people to be mavericks, then you may have a problem. So you need, probably need a discussion with HR and things and the line managers as to what's going wrong here. Um, so if it's real, fix it. Even though there's a perception. I mean, if there's just a perception, and actually more of the mavericks or the anarchists are getting promoted than anyone else, you need to get that information out there. Last thing I would say, and, and Juan's already talked about it, it, it is also about the culture and tone of an organisation. If, if people recognise that the boss man or boss lady likes this way of doing business, then people will get promoted. People will encourage it. People will want, they will go, have you noticed that in my team, you know, we've got 10 outspoken people in this organisation, eight are in my team. I mean, People, other than, my God, I've got eight troublemakers, can I change division or something? I mean, it's so, it is about tone and culture set from the top. Um, we, we ask our guests um, about an example on bad decisions, either on their personal lives or things that they have seen. But I think it's, it, it would be nice if Andy um, tell us about a recent bad decision that he made. You, you want my bad decision? I, I know want exactly your bad decision, yeah. Um, okay, I, I will tell this very briefly. Um, so I, I was running for a tube with a, a colleague not so long ago and um, it's on the Jubilee line and for anyone who knows the Jubilee line there, there are two sets of doors there's the outer door of the platform there's the inner door uh, where the tube shut and um, the tube was sat there it was waiting the doors were open um, so I, I thought a gentle jog would get me into the, the tube and my colleague could, could join me as well um, Unfortunately, as I got to the first set of doors, uh, they started to close on me. So I, I was hit from, from one side by those doors. My instant reaction was obviously to save my colleague. I had to turn around and hold those doors open for my colleague, at which point the second set of doors closed directly onto my neck. So the image is that I had my body inside the tube, my head was facing outside, and my head was outside of the tube. 
and a look of absolute horror apparently came across my face. <laughs> it took two tube stops for my colleague to stop laughing at the situation, and I'm very glad to say there were no photos of this. So uh, this is just a story which sits with me. Um, and I think we should move on very quickly to your bad decisions. God, if only my worst decision was getting trapped in a tube door, I tell you. It's, uh, <laughs> um, it, it's a really interesting question, and it's a question that I've noticed, or I've been asked before, and I've seen other people ask, be asked. And I've actually seen a couple of people say, oh, well, I don't think I've ever made a bad decision. Um, I, you know, at that point, I think everyone should just leave the room because you, mission control, you do have a problem. I mean, if, we're, if you individually can't learn from mistakes and decisions, if people aren't empowered to push the envelope so occasionally mistakes are made, not stupidity or incompetence, then organisations are going to really struggle. So, so first of all, you know, mistakes, genuine, hardworking trying to push it, mistakes are inevitable. So, so in terms of bad decisions, I mean, I, I thought about this question and I, I, I'm going to phrase it in three ways. The, the, the first way I'd, I'd say is that um, I, I immediately, if, if anyone makes a decision and it's got an element of personal gain, personal promotion or blame to others in it, then I'm immediately suspicious. I mean, it smells wrong, it feels wrong. So that, that's my sort of my first level of test. But my second level of test is, if it's sort of a dogmatic approach. And, you know, I was in Iraq just after um, the, the last war when Saddam Hussein fell, and I was there when a, a group of dogmatic um, diplomats and politicians made the decree that no one in the Ba'ath Party that was Saddam Hussein's ruling party could have any role in the new administration, um, purely on dogmatic grounds. Um, the reality is most of them weren't Bathists, they joined because the only way you could get a job was to be a member of the party. But in doing so, we excluded everyone who understood how to run Iraq in a 30-second window. And we wonder why the country collapsed around us. So that's why I say dogmatic approach. The, the last decision, and, I, and I, I have been guilty of, of these myself, it is occasionally in life you, you will get faced with a decision where you know what's right, you know what has to be done. Um, but you let personal emotion or personal feelings take over. And that doesn't mean being I'm a compassionate person. I think I've got good EQ. Um, but in particular instance, I had a person working for me who had a long career in the army, um, 38 years. They had six months left to go. Um, it was clear that they were bullying and harassing people under command. They had to go. I, I could have formally dismissed them and had an investigation, or I could suspend them without blame and just move them sideways and let them finish off their career. I suspended, moved sideways. Um, people were saying it was the right thing to do, six months to go, nothing would be gained by humiliating this person as they left. The reality was, as soon as that happened, they then effectively sued us because if they had done anything wrong, they would have been sacked and formally investigated. Um, two-year investigation ensued. We were cleared absolutely. He actually just made life far worse for himself in the end. But everyone went through that two years of, of discomfort and hell because I hadn't, and others advised me not to, my decision, taken the swift, firm decision I should have come. And actually talking to people about similar circumstances, I, I'm really taken by a phrase that I was told by an American some time ago. And they said that certain misery is always better than the misery of uncertainty. 
And if you think about that, it, it is very true. If you need to lance a boil, just do it. You know, don't leave it festering for a period of time. Uh, and so, you know, personal decisions that promote self-interest are dogmatic, bad. And if you need to make a harsh decision and your heart and your head is telling you to, just do it, what I would say. One, one thing we always ask as avid readers um, is, are there any interesting books that you would recommend for us? I'm glad you asked that, actually. And I, I knew this question was coming. And it felt a bit like Desert Island discs or whatever, if you're old enough, you remember that sort of thing. But, but I, and I, I do read a lot, and I, I thought long and hard about this, and I'm going to cheat. I think the question is a book, so I'm going to give you two books, but there is a reason for it. The, the, the first thing I would say is, is if you don't have a basic knowledge of big data, analytics, that sort of thing, and you're in the business of senior leadership, you probably need to do it. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to be an expert, but I, but I would recommend you read um, Big Data, there's a hint in the title, um, by Mayer, Schonberger, and Kukia, I think are the names. But it's a really easy ride. It's a little paperback, but it gives a really good idiot's guide to, to big data. The other extreme, though, um, I was recommended a couple of months ago to go and buy a copy of How to Make Friends and Influence People, which I think was written in 1820 or something. It wasn't, and it was in the 60s, I think, uh, by Carnegie, which is a really interesting sort of description of human relationships and, as it says, how to win friends and influence people. Read them both together. Because actually, I think in many ways that the modern senior executive is facing the crossroads of dealing with big data, analytics, and artificial intelligence in a world where human interaction is still absolutely essential. So the two of them together, I think, just give a really good sort of sense of that juxtaposition that, that we now all face and where we go with that journey. So have fun. Thank you. That's been fascinating, really interesting. Really appreciate you coming on the on the show. Thank you very much for your time. 